Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Noha Sidom, founder and chief investment officer of Virabus Capital, a firm focused on trading power products in the organized electricity markets. Now, Noha is an absolute unicorn to me, and we discuss on this episode her childhood, growing from Cairo, Egypt to Omaha, Nebraska. It's just one thing I find so interesting about her background. And then we also discuss professionally going from lawyer to electricity trading portfolio manager. What? (laughs) I know. And I have no clue or a little bit more of a clue now after this conversation of how the power grid in the country works. And Noha was kind enough to break it down for me and answer all of my simple questions. I am inspired by her drive, but also Noha's ability to filter through the noise and negativity and stay positive. It sounds so simple, right? But we all know how hard that is. For those who don't know, Viribus is Latin for strength, and Noha is an incredibly strong person. I am inspired by her grit, her tenacity, and her overall compassion in building a business, which is hard to do in this esoteric strategy, but she does it with a lot of strength. Please enjoy this interview with the Virabus herself, Noha Sidom. Hi, Noha. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining. I am so excited to learn all things electricity, futures, trading related, and I'll ask you all my simple questions. But before we do and talk about your amazing fun that you launched recently, can we rewind your highlight reel all the way back and share with our listeners where you grew up? So my upbringing was a little unusual. My family moved from Cairo, Egypt to Omaha, Nebraska when I was nine. So I grew up in Omaha, which was a lovely place to grow up, although not an incredibly diverse place. It was a very interesting experience. Oh my gosh, there's already so many questions I have with that alone. I have two boys. My oldest is nine, and I can't imagine moving him in one city, let alone a country. (laughs) What was that like, or what was the reason your parents moved you from Egypt over to the States? We moved because we're a Coptic Christian. And I actually don't know, I think a lot of people don't even know that there are Egyptians who are Christian. My dad basically thought the Arab Spring was going to happen way before it actually happened. And there was just significant discrimination against Christians in Egypt. He thought we would have a much, he had two daughters. So on top of the fact that it's already a fairly sexist society and culture, he just thought add the religion aspect to it and we would have much better opportunities in the U.S. Incredible. And how did you find Nebraska? And my husband's Egyptian, but I would say I don't know Nebraska to have a lot of Egyptians there. (laughs) I jokingly always tell my parents that they missed the memo that all of our people are in New Jersey or Detroit or even California. So both my uncles were doctors and 
it's really difficult as a foreign doctor to get a residency. So one of them got a residency in Fargo, North Dakota, of all places. And then the second one was wanting to take the board exam. So the nearest Kaplan was in Omaha, you know, just like the Oregon Trail. Oh, my goodness. So here you are entering what third, fourth grade. What was that like for you? It was a really sort of just fascinating experience because I, you know, we'd only been to the U.S. once before. We really just visited family that was already here. People had some really interesting questions I don't think I expected. So things like, did you ride a camel to school? Which was kind of ironic. Cairo is far more cosmopolitan than Omaha was, is. People, I think, just didn't know how to digest this almost. Amazing. My husband has similar stories where his mom would pack him pita and other lunch things. And he would be so mortified because all the other kids were like, what's pita? Meanwhile, now a really popular snack and people include it, but it's that exposure that people didn't have. So that lack of exposure, awareness. So you grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. One question I always like to ask people because I'm so curious how they chose it and the decision-making process to it, but how did you choose the college you went to and why? So I went to University of Nebraska thinking I was going to eventually then leave for law school because I just really wanted to get out of Omaha. And then I got a full scholarship for law school as well. But really, it was a cost. I didn't want to spend a lot of money. I was paying for my own school. And I wanted my undergrad to be cost effective. What about law interested you at the time? I jokingly tell people that if you're Egyptian, you can be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer. And I just gravitated more towards law. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor and engineering seemed boring to me, which is kind of ironic now that what I do has such a strong engineering tie. It sounds similar to any immigrant child upbringing. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, and that's about it. Things that were perceived to be of elevated status and stability. Meanwhile, my parents have no idea what I do because it's not in those categories. My mom still tells people I have no idea what she does, but she got a law degree. Like I did my part. Right. <laughs> right. And so what was your first job out of college with this law degree that your parents approved of? I took a year off in between and I worked for Senator Hagel. And that was just a really great experience. I think being on the Hill at that time, I got to meet some really intellectual people and that was fun. But then I realized, like, okay, now you really do have to go back and get some higher education. And then after law school, I started work at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission That's the agency that regulates wholesale power in the U.S. And that's really how I got in this business. You know, I graduated in 2008. At the time, nobody, I really wanted to go to Wall Street. I'd worked at the SEC when I was in law school, but obviously that was terrible timing for Wall Street. So my dean literally said, why don't you go to this little known agency, but it's right across the street from the SEC and they regulate markets too. And it was just fascinating. Rewinding a little bit, what was your experience like with Senator Hagel? What was that? internship like or experience? I think Senator Hagel was a real statesman. And I think there's a big distinction between a politician and a statesman. Him and and Senator McCain, whose office was right next to ours, really wanted to do what was best for this country. I think that was largely driven by the fact that they were both veterans. Interesting. What was your work with him like? It was great. I mean, obviously, I didn't have a ton of exposure to him because I was there for a short period of time. But he really cared about doing the right thing. As you know, he may know, he had gone on to become Obama's Secretary of Defense. So it wasn't about party lines. It was, okay, how do we best protect the people in our country? Can you share more for people who have no idea, including myself, what the Federal Energy Federation does? Just a bit of summary on them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission regulates wholesale power. They also regulate gas and hydro in this country, or pieces of it, I should say. But the part that I'm most involved in is they regulate wholesale power in the United States and mergers and acquisitions around power assets in the United States. And they really play an integral role. When you're at home and you turn on the lights and the lights actually come on, they're a huge player in that at the federal level. Could you share, because this is where I just turn on the light switch and I assume it will go on and I think nothing deeper about that. Can you share how it all works? Because for myself, I have no clue. I just assume it works and I take it for granted. So I'd love to share with our listeners how it does work. So obviously your utility plays a big role in that and maintaining the network. Underneath that, there are people that own generation, depending on what the state regulations are, whether, you know, they own all the assets, whether they, you know, the assets are separated, there's your local utility. But then above that, if you live in a region with an organized market, there is an entity that helps balance power across the utilities and power sharing and outage scheduling. We can store electricity now, but not in an incredibly meaningful way yet. Basically, electricity is, as a commodity, you have to balance 24-7. And that makes it an incredibly complex commodity. So you were there for a while. You were there for about four years. What was your role there? I worked in the markets division in the Office of General Counsel. So largely working on market design issues, competition, open access. I worked on some transmission issues. I also worked on some cybersecurity reliability issues really running the gamut of what does it take to keep the lights on? How does the money flow in this industry? How does the financial component of these transactions work? I really wanted to venture and also really further explore the business side. I left and went into private practice and I ended up working for a partner that represented mostly trading entities. And that was right around the time when Dodd-Frank was getting implemented there were a lot of enforcement proceedings around commodities. A lot of the banks decided to get out of commodities, certainly out of power. It was a really interesting time to be in that role and really work through some client concerns on compliance, enforcement. What should these markets look like? Are the rules clear enough? And then I got poached by one of my clients to be their general counsel. Amazing. At the time, or maybe even now, is the world or that ecosystem, is it a small amount of players? Like, do you know all the people effectively because it's such a small and tight-knit group? I would imagine it's such a complex topic. Not many people would be that interested and attracted to this because it's just too technical or too complex. But how many people are in this? I'm imagining it's a small group. So the utility world in general is very small. So then the slice of it that I transact in the FTR market, financial transmission rights, which are basically forward contracts on the price of congestion, that's a very small sliver of the space. So it is a very small world. Everybody does know everybody. I think it's a really great world because you do have to really have an appetite for nuance to be in the space. I get to work with some incredibly smart people on policy issues. Everybody who's dealing with some of these pricing issues at the wholesale level has to have a deep understanding of how these markets work. So you end up working with also incredibly passionate people. Moving from that side to where you were in terms of one of the clients poached you, you were general counsel there. What was that experience like? And then ultimately, what helped you transition to managing your own fund and creating that? 
So that was a good experience. I learned a lot. Our CEO was fairly hands-off. So I got to learn a lot about helping manage risk, helping manage the growth of the organization. And even though my title was general counsel, we had a good trading presence, but our management team was small. So I got to really play a lot of active roles on the operational side and really learn how do you run a business like this. And then in 2014, 2015, the polar vortex hit. And that was really kind of a rude awakening for the market. And some of the utilities that were not well hedged experienced some significant financial losses. And I just saw the writing on the wall. You know, we were retiring a lot of coal assets. We were bringing a lot of gas online. Entities that were financing these assets wanted to ensure that their congestion risk was mitigated or well hedged. So I went to my CEO and I said, you know, I really think we need to be further out the curve. Like that's where I see the need for liquidity. He wasn't really interested in doing that. So I decided to go launch my own company. And I did that with some money I had made buying and selling real estate when I was a government lawyer. Rewinding a little bit, you mentioned that you had suggested we need to be further up the curve. What does that mean? So trading in longer term contracts. If you are financing an asset, you need to know what is the market price, the forward locational price on, in this area. And that's really what the FTR market provides for people. Great. And so you started your own fund. What did that look like to you in terms of by design what you wanted to create versus what it ended up being initially? I knew from being general counsel that I didn't want to hire a whole bunch of traders. I really wanted to deploy technology. One of the beautiful things about our space is there's a lot of data. It's so much data that no human can possibly process all the available contracts we have at our disposal and all of the potential parameters you could put into an algorithm. So I used the company called Yes Energy, helped develop the systems and worked closely with them and their team on how this would work. And then we started pitching it to some Chicago-based prop firms and got picked up by a reputable firm there. And at the time, my now business partner and our CTO, Nick Schaefer, was interested in leaving Yes Energy. He had helped me with a lot of sort of the development aspects of it and the technology challenges that I was facing. I really wanted to go to the cloud and that was before Yes Energy had a strong cloud offering. So we basically architected our infrastructure from the ground up. I jokingly tell investors, he saved me from poking my eyes out due to an Oracle database. It used to take us overnight to run our models and now we do it in under 10 minutes. So I had a vision about technology And I had a vision about not just doing this algorithmically, but also layering in the fundamental piece. And that's really what we have iterated over the past five years. So fast forward to today, you got backed by an incredible firm, did really well, actually was the top performer for many, many years before deciding to launch your own thing. For those who don't know, what is Viribus mean, the fund that you launched? So Viribus is Latin for strength. And I'm a lawyer, so I always pick Latin names for my entities. And our team makes fun of me a little bit about it. That's okay. Here you are. You were a portfolio manager with a backer. And what changed your mind of not staying there and launching your own thing? Because effectively, you were running your own portfolio under that with a backer. But what was the difference for you and the catalyst to really start Bureaubus? We needed more capital. And we were deploying a significant percentage of their capital. It just We weren't going to be able to grow where we wanted to grow, but we have a great relationship with them. I want to say most of the partners invested us in their personal capacity, including their chief risk officer of 30 years. 
we still talk to them all the time. It's great to build those relationships, but continue to grow. Can you share more about your strategy for people who have no idea what trading power products in electricity markets means? I would imagine that your background is so additive in that you're a lawyer, you've looked at the policy and the framework, but then also adding that trading element. So long-winded way of asking, can you just share all of the both market overview and also specifically how Viribus plays in that? Absolutely. So we're very involved at the policy level. We have a great trading operation. But I would say the two go hand in hand. You have to understand all the market rule changes to be able to effectively transact in these markets. You have to be able to talk to the regulator about the benefit you're providing in the space and how critical these products are for infrastructure development and for maintaining reliability. So we trade, like I said before, financial transmission rights, FTRs. And really what an FTR is, is the price of congestion from point A to point B on the grid. And I always tell investors that don't have exposure to the power space, think of it like a toll road, where the cost of the toll goes up and down with the volume of traffic. We're basically purchasing or selling a forward contract on the potential price of that toll. So the transmission line is the road and the amount of electricity that needs to go out of the potential for congestion is basically the, what changes the cost, the traffic. And for those who didn't know, and I, to be honest, I didn't know until a year or two ago when Texas had the whole issues and I learned that Texas was on its own grid in the U.S. specifically, how many regional markets that breaks down to? Because after chatting with you initially, I had no idea how it all worked. Again, I flip on my light switch. I assume it comes and I just assume like we're all on one grid. That's not the case. But can you share more about the color of regional markets? Joining regional markets is a voluntary thing. Texas, because it's run on its own They've sort of chosen to be their own entity. They're not regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission because there's not interstate commerce there. There are seven organized markets in the United States. Not every state is part of an organized market. They have a choice of whether or not they want to do that and whether the utility in in that footprint wants to do that. Now, there are obviously a lot of tremendous benefits to them and their customers for joining these entities. They help them manage outages. They make it cheaper for them and easier for them to figure out movement of power. And there's a reason so many prominent utilities have joined them. But they also hold the monthly auctions and annual auctions for financial transmission rights. Why wouldn't a state elect to go into the organized market or one of these organized markets? There's a multitude of reasons why states would decide not to do that. A lot of it is also the the utility's preference in that area. I would say there's a lot of political reasons. I think a lot of folks choose not to join. I think that's unfortunate. I think there was a letter sent last year by a lot of former FERC commissioners to the current commission saying, we really need to focus on expansion of organized markets because of the tremendous benefits to customers. So then Viribus looks at all this data from all the different regional markets and says, okay, here's what we think or forecast is the most attractively priced contracts, or how does that work in terms of your actual strategy? So we look at a variety of things. We obviously look at weather patterns. We look at infrastructure that's being developed. We look at infrastructure that's currently existing and where there are pressure points for the grid. How do we better reflect pricing at those pressure points so that investors are looking at this and saying, well, gee, maybe I should invest in this location and not in that location. 
So we're really just trying to form a really solid forward price for investors by participating in the competitive market. How far out are these forward contracts generally? The longest term contracts are three-year contracts offered in the PJM market, which is a market in the Eastern Interconnect. Can you share all the different regional markets? Yeah, there's California, Texas, ISO, which stands for Independent System Operator, ISO New England, New York ISO. New York is also a single state. There's PJM, which is 13 states in the District of Columbia, the Mid-Continent ISO, which is the middle swath of the U.S., and then Texas, as we mentioned, and SPP, Southwest Power Pool. And so each of these regional markets, they control those markets separately, or is it coordinated? How do they all work together? They also work together. Where they share seams, we often experience some seams issues, and they have to figure out how do we best coordinate those. So if you're looking at these regional markets, how do you identify or extract what is an attractive trade? Can you walk me through a trade example? The available opportunity set is very large. So for example, just in the PJM market and the monthly auctions, there are about 6,000 nodes you can trade. So over 150 million combinations. So that's a huge pool of trades to choose from. So then we can look at what are the fundamental dynamics in that location? What is historical pricing in that location? What does liquidity look like? What's short-term and long-term profitability look like? What's the reputation of that utility for managing outages in that area? What kind of risk premium do we want to add? What do we expect the weather patterns to be? Modeling various load forecast scenarios and how they might impact our portfolio. So we look at a variety of factors and really distill it to the best of the best. We also have an incredibly conservative bid structure. So we clear anywhere between you know, 20 to 40% of our portfolio, depending on how the market's pricing. We cast a wide net. I love that. And to your point about how do you comb through hundreds of millions of trade options, I love that you're adding a tech and AI component to that just to help filter and screen that. How much of your legal background and your knowledge of the markets from a legal angle or legal lens adds value? For me, as I'm listening to this, it's not just the weather and all the other things that fundamental analysts can look at, but also like the policy and all the other kind of intangibles. How much does that add to your research? I think it's hugely beneficial for me because I can focus on where we're headed. There are obviously some incredibly bright and talented traders, but they don't have the time to follow all these policy issues if they're just focused on fundamental trading. I think what I bring by incorporating the significant technology aspect is that allows me to free up some of my time to really be integrated in the policy issues. And knowing where the market is headed is really helpful in developing better models. Can you expand more on that? Because I think it's such a big part of it. Like your background is so much more additive than the traders who are just looking at it, like not thinking truly of like where the forest is between the trees that they're seeing with the trading. I mean, I think things like people keep talking about this energy transition. We're in the midst. We have been for several years now in the midst of this energy transition. I get a lot of debate from both sides from my investors about climate change, whether they're strong believers or they just hate the fact that people keep talking about climate change. And I just say to them, it doesn't really matter what you believe. I realize this has turned into a theological debate. The states are moving forward with aggressive renewable standards. Like this is the new normal for our generation. And not every megawatt is equal. As we rely more on inverter-based resources, we need to ensure that we have other resources that can come online so that you can keep the lights on when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. We do need to invest in improving storage technology and make sure 
that as we integrate additional renewables, we have the appropriate tech to really bring them online and not harm the customer. I love it. I could ask you hours and hours more questions on electricity markets because it's an area I know nothing about and you're so fluent in the space. And I also just think your background is so interesting in applying that lens. Maybe one last question professionally. What keeps you motivated professionally? Professionally? Gosh, I think I've always had a fear of failing. And my kids, I have a son and a daughter, but I have a daughter and I want her to see a great role model in the business world. And when I started in this business, I really looked up to women that were ahead of me. I mean, they were giants and I stood on their shoulders and I hope that I'm providing and can provide that same platform for women now entering the field. Already, I mean, the listeners would have heard how unique your background is already. Here is a immigrant from Egypt who grew up in Nebraska, who's a lawyer, but also in the power markets. Like, talk about a unicorn. <laughs> so as you're now pretty much a portfolio manager and founder of Eurobus, that's where it's so amazing. And I'm going to love tracking your career because it's already such an amazing story. I'd love to switch over to more of the signature questions that we ask in the show and you mentioned the F word already in terms of a failure, but just the signature questions we asked on growth from failure, starting with who or what inspires you? A lot of women in our utility space inspire me because they started in this space and you know, people like Commissioner Cheryl LaFleur, who was at National Grid for 30 years and was their acting CEO, Kathleen Barone, who's high up at Exelon, was one of my mentors when I was at FERC. These are women that have juggled having a family, and operating at a very high level in a very male-dominated world and doing it gracefully and really being incredibly smart in the room, but also empathetic and collaborative. I'm glad that you mentioned some names because I'm like, are there women outside of you in the utilities world? (laughs) So I'm glad you mentioned a few. I used to think it doesn't get worse than the utility world and like we're really working on, but it's come a long way in the last 10 years. But then I got into finance and I didn't think finance was going to be worse, but it is. Oh, it is, especially for the markets in which you operate. It's really, really tiny for women specifically. Did you have a mentor or role model? You mentioned a few women in utilities, but just overall in either law or business, finance, trading. I think somebody who has become a close friend and also a confidant, a woman by the name of Adrian Clare. She's African-American. She's in the utility business. She's a partner at a law firm. I tell the story and people laugh at me. I saw her when I was at FERC because there was just like nobody that looked like me when I first started. And I literally saw her walk in. She's like incredibly well put together and huge smile. Everybody wanted to be around her. And I was like, I need to become friends with her. Who is this person? We actually were across the table from each other when I was in private practice and very collaborative and got to know each other and have become good friends. And it's really important to have people that have gone through the same things you've gone through as a sounding board as you move through your career. I love it. Adrienne Claire. Okay, she's now on my radar. I love it. Looking back, I mean, your career, I talk about someone who... If you go into a room and people know your background, I am sure you're now going to have a line out the door of people who are like, wait a minute, know how to this, this, this and that. And she's in power and energy and her background is what? I need to talk to her. So I think you're well on your way to being someone similar, if not already there to Adrian. Thank you. Thank you. When you look at your background, you've accomplished so much. And Viribus just launched a little over a year, year and a half ago. What are you most proud of? I'm proud of how far we've come, both in our models. We continue to improve the trading operation every single day. 
But I'm really proud of the team we've built. They're very talented. We're collaborative. And we have a great time at work every day. I never wake up and think like, oh, I don't want to do this. I always think I really can't wait to get on the call. You had mentioned what keeps you going professionally. You mentioned almost like a fear of failure. Given the name of the show, I'd love to have you share a little bit more about the F word in the sense of, I'm sure your career, both on the law side, on the trading side, the fund management side, and overall might have a lot of stories of struggle and hardship and even failure, especially with day-to-day P&L that is your report card that shows whether you did good for the day or not. But can you share maybe one or two of the most impactful struggles or failures personally or professionally, that you can share with our listeners? And then hopefully, ultimately, some growth that I'm sure came from that. When we first started pitching for the fund, there were a lot of people that said, well, you were never a floor trader. And you're really a lawyer. I have one particular potential investor say to me, you know, I've never allocated money to somebody who looks like you. I was a little taken aback by that. And I said, well... I don't really know what you mean by that, but I think you should look at our returns and that's really the part that matters and my experience in the space. So I think it's that because there are so few women in the space, because my background is so unorthodox, there are a lot of people that tell you like, this isn't really the right thing for you. Do I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder? Absolutely. There were a lot of people that told me I couldn't do this when I started. But, you know, there were also mentors that told me I could. There are some very smart folks in this business that I have a privilege of working with. And I remember talking to one of them specifically. And other people had said, I don't think you really want to do this. It's kind of crazy for somebody who doesn't come from money to launch their own trading company. But this particular gentleman said, well, here's my experience raising money. Here are the family offices I've talked to. He didn't question my decision to do it he was offering ways to be helpful. And I think that's what I choose to focus on and not the people that constantly tell you you're going to fail or this is really hard. Or do you really want to do this when your kids are so young? You mentioned a handful, but I'm sure there's dozens and dozens of more stories of people who have said no's or buts or are you sure? And it's a lot more because of a few things. One is your a woman, you're a minority, you're in a very esoteric strategy, and you're generally in a market that is complex and difficult. So all those things together, people have never seen this before, and they don't know how to digest you. (laughs) And so they instead just say, no, let's just make sure you operate in the framework that I'm used to, because otherwise, I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, it's crazy to me, but I've faced it a little bit in my side of the business. And We've been talking about equality for decades and decades, and we're not just talking race or gender, but expectations overall by strategy. It's a a long haul. And so that's where I'm so impressed and inspired by you because the lift is not just one thing. It is so many different things. And you're trying to run a business too. (laughs) I think affinity bias is a real thing, but I will say some of my biggest supporters and biggest mentors have also been white males. I think you have to choose to focus on the positive, but let the naysayers continue to drive you. Turn that energy into something positive for yourself. There's one venture capitalist that I enjoy. A lot of his sayings and speeches, but one of them is Josh Wolf, who says, chips on shoulders equates to chips in pockets. And because that drives you and that ultimately, whether it's financial success or others, but the idea is you get chips in your pocket because you work so hard to prove to the naysayers that it is possible and that you're doing well and succeeding. Speaking of success, what does success mean for you? I 
think it's being happy doing what I'm doing, but also being able to create opportunities for other people and continuing to grow our organization so that it's next level. I spoke to somebody last week who's running an unbelievable sum of money. It was almost staggering to me. It was really great because at one point they were talking about how unique our strategy is and how impressed they were with the team. And they said, you know, sometimes when we put our name behind things, it brings a lot of other people to the table. And that's a really powerful thing. And I think we need more people like me to work hard to be in a position to be able to create those opportunities for others. And in a prior conversation you had shared, the way that you're growing your business, and that includes attracting talent, training talent, and retaining talent is quite unique. And I think in part because of your background of being a lawyer, your background is just very different and unique. So you're applying that same unique approach to building out the business, looking at talent differently. And so if you don't mind sharing how you're thinking about building the staff at your company, I think that's really interesting to share. We are looking for good, talented female traders. Some people have called that reverse discrimination. It's not discrimination. We're still looking for very qualified people. We haven't hired one yet. We're still looking for one. There aren't a a ton of women that want to stick with the traditional trading culture. At our size, it becomes more difficult because we need somebody with more experience. And a lot of people aren't staying long enough to gain that experience. So I'm trying to be more proactive with younger female traders, telling them to stick it out, telling them the world is changing and they need to be part of that change. And hopefully we'll get to a point where it makes sense to add somebody at a more junior level. We can incorporate them or give them those opportunities or someone at a senior level as well. We're looking to build that out. We're also looking for more female investors. That's the other thing. I've pitched three women. I mean, that's nothing. I've done hundreds of pitches. I love that you're thinking about it in all sides, not just the on the investment side, but also the LP base side. I love that. One question I like to ask is, because it came up from a conversation that one listener gave me feedback. He goes, one person mentioned this is their superpower. So I started incorporating more because one listener said, oh, I love that superpower answer. And so I started incorporating this new question of what is your superpower? I think my superpower is that I think I can do anything, that I think the struggle is the real success. When Kobe Bryant, when they retired his jersey, his daughters were there and he was telling them, we all know if you work really hard, good things happen to you. But it's those nights when you really have to push yourself or those early mornings. You know, it's times when I'm up at 4.30 looking at the portfolio or it's really late at night and that's when I'm reading a lot of information that's being put out by the markets and I'm exhausted. It's understanding that having the opportunity to do that and that struggle is actually the success. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. I think I just always start with really lofty goals. So the struggle becomes big, but that struggle is the positive experience. Forget the mama mentality. There's now the know-how mentality. I'm going (laughs) to think about that more often. For those who are listening to you, and I love the framing that you have where, yes, there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of struggles. Some even failures would categorize as pitching an investor and saying no or getting some comments that are not so favorable. Do you have any tips or characteristics or attributes that you can share with our listener to remain positive or to think about it differently if you get all the rejection or the failure or those moments of struggle because you think about it so beautifully in such a positive way. But how? I could say that out loud. So yes, when you get some bumpy road, just keep going. But it's so hard in that moment to remember to be positive. Do you have any tips to share? 
I definitely have my days and there are days that are a real struggle. It does kind of go back to this, the dream is in the struggle. Nobody has it easy. They may have different challenges. But I think that that was another thing that COVID really brought out is we do all have a lot of struggles and we need to face those struggles and focus on the positive, focus on the silver lining. I do think we have a mental health crisis at this time. I do think that's something people need to be aware of. That's why I say that I think empathy is a really important aspect of the people that I have viewed as role models. And now I just tell my team, I'm happy to get to a quick no. That just, it's one step closer to yes. One part that you mentioned about the beauty in that struggle, there's a person I interviewed, Lindsay Benner was her name, and she is an entertainer, but one of her specialties is juggling. And the way she described it is, summarizing what you're saying is the joy in the drop. And she said, as a viewer, you look at a juggler and you think, oh my gosh, that was awful if there is a pin or whatever that is dropped. And she says, as the juggler, you actually have a joy in the drop because that's the moment you realize, oh, something didn't go well, or what can I learn from that? Because you never learn when you keep going in that fluided motion. When you drop, she goes, I experience a joy in that drop. And it blew my mind as 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 simple as that saying. And so I use that expression a lot of the joy in the drop. That's great. I love that. Feel free to steal. <laughs> you know, this is so great. I learned a ton and I will make sure to read more about Verbus because I'm personally just interested in learning more. Where can people find out more about you and the fund? Verbusfund.com. Ping me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm always happy to tell people about our industry. Last question. What's next for Noha Sidom? Continuing to grow this operation, continuing to be an advocate for competition in the space and continuing to just grow the team and grow our ability to better these markets. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I had a blast in this interview. Thank you. 